And all the church said, you may be seated. And while you're being seated, just a quick reminder that if you go to the website, uh, go to our homepage, you can scroll down just a short distance and you'll find a little button that says uh, MPG and today's sermon notes. You can toggle on that button and it will take you to uh, an outline, a complete outline. Remember, uh, it seems it was a year ago that uh, we were kind of doing this the normal way where you would fill in the blanks. Uh, but because we're not passing out anything these days, and everything's electronic, more so than it's ever been, uh, there is a complete sermon outline that you can use uh, to, to follow up, to uh, go over maybe another th- couple of points that we talked about this morning. Maybe something came up in your own mind, and you want to, those notes in front of you to be able to make... Uh, make some, uh, some comments of your own. And then on the back side of that is this thing we called MPG. MPG for most of us means uh, miles per gal- gallon. It's about how far you go uh, with a tank of gas. Uh, with us on Sundays, we want MPG to stand for memorize. We want it to stand for prayer. And we want it to stand for glorify. And this is the way that you take the sermon and the message, things that we're talking about further into your life, further down the road with, with your week. And there will be a scripture from today's message that you'll be able to memorize. There'll be some guidance for some prayers this week that pertain to the way that we, we think about God's Word today. And then there'll be some, some questions for you to reflect on uh, or maybe some tasks for you to go and do during the week that will make this message more practical for you. And uh, today we're going to continue this series. Before we do it, let's pray and ask God to bless us as we think about His Word. Father, we're, we're grateful for the day that You have laid out before us. And regardless of the temperature, the climate, or the weather, this day is beautiful because You are at the very center of it. And You, Father, are a beauty to us. You are beautiful beyond our ability to even describe. You have graced our lives with forgiveness and love and mercy and adoption and a home and belonging and a sense of the future, Father, that has significance. We're grateful for all of these things. And in this moment, Father, when we open up your word and we study what it means to be your a disciple of your son Jesus, and to live a life that is transformed and is a signpost of the world to come. We pray that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear in such a way that not only are we continually transformed into the likeness of Jesus, but that as a signpost of the world to come, that we will help draw people to you. Father, thank you for this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. And again, the church says... Like I said earlier, we are in a series of messages on what it means to be the body of Christ. And the idea of the body of Christ really comes uh, in a lot of different places. Two scriptures in particular that we're thinking about is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul, writing literally about the body of Jesus being like a human body, says, Now you, the church, Christians, disciples of Jesus, are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of of it. And then in Romans chapter 12, he says, in Christ, again, talking about disciples of Jesus, we, though many, form one body. And then he takes the thought just a little bit further, and he says, and each member belongs to the other. Each member belongs to the other. 
Now those are the theme scriptures, a, a theme statement that kind of encompasses all that we're trying to say about being the body of Jesus is this, that all of us make one of us. All of us make one of us. And what that theme statement is trying to convey is that all of us as parts of the body, as many as we are, as, as different, as diverse as we are, we should be so connected to each other that it looks like one body, that it looks like one. And this is why there are so many of the one another passages in the Bible. The one another passages are what keeps the body, the body of Christ, the church, healthy and functioning and connecting in ways that drive us deeper, deeper and deeper, more deeply into relationship with each other. And so some of the one another passages that we have looked at over the last several weeks is love one another. John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. And he defines that love as his love. When you love each other as I have loved you. And so what he is trying to convey to the church and to not just the disciples in that moment, but the church into the future of which we are a part is to say that the church this, the, the, this body of Christ right here should be one of the most loving places on earth. And then one of the ways that you show that love is to pray for one another. That's James chapter 5. The brother of Jesus says you want to love each other, pray for one another. What can be more loving than saying the name of a brother or a sister or somebody that you really care for, saying their name into the ear of God, asking God to bless them in ways that you can never do on your own? You're asking God to bless somebody in such a spectacular way. I mean, that is one of the most loving things that you can do for someone. And then last week, we talked about forgiving one another. Ephesians chapter uh, 4, Colossians chapter 3. It's found in different places. But, but Paul keeps saying to the church, you know, the body is, the, the integrity of the body has got to be its oneness, it, it, the way that it sticks together, the way that it is connected. But knowing human nature the way that he does, he realizes that from time to time we do things or we say things or we don't do things or we don't say something that we're supposed to say and it hurts somebody. And so forgiveness is the way that we remove the obstacles in order for reconciliation and oneness and unity, even in diversity, can, can stand firm. What we're going to look at today is encourage one another. But before we go there, I just I want to remind you of, of this really important thing, that the existence of these, these passages, these one another passages, teach us something really important about what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And by way of reminder, just let me say it this way. Disciples of Jesus are built to live an intensely relational and connected life to other disciples. Disciples of Jesus are built to live an intensely relational and connected life to other disciples. We are to be one. And that is to be a oneness that is just not seen in any area of life. And this really cuts across the grain of our culture that really likes to lift up individualism. In our culture, you are judged by what you achieve, the acclaim that you're able to get. You are applauded for doing it on your own. 
And there are parts of that that we have all seen. There are parts of that that we've all experienced. But I want to tell you something that's sort of a growing conviction with me. And that is this full-blown individualism is really just a myth. It's really just a myth. Human beings were built for relationship. I mean, this is a sermon somewhere else down the road. But we were built for relationships, and we do not do life well alone. Michael Jordan, before there was a LeBron James, right? Michael Jordan was considered, and still by many, to be the greatest NBA basketball player of all time. But guess what? He could never have won those championships, those six, in, in what was it, eight, eight years? He won six championships in eight years. He could never have done that without Scottie Pippen or Horace Grant or th- the rest of his team. Think about Emmitt Smith. Emmitt Smith, the leading rusher in the NFL for all time. Never could have done that without Moose Johnson, the fullback, leading the way through the hole or that gigantic, massive offensive line that, were, that was the Dallas Cowboys in the 1990s. Elton John is not Elton John without Bernie Taupin. Shrek is not Shrek without that donkey. Captain Kirk is not Captain Kirk without Spock or without Bones. I mean, you get the idea. We are to do life together. And the very fact that we are called disciples means that we are connecting our lives to another. That's what discipleship means. That's what being a disciple means. That you are apprenticing or you are connecting your life to another person so profoundly and deeply that you begin to imitate their life and to walk and to talk and to do as they do in their own life. We are called to be disciples of Jesus. We are connected to another. And so the big idea today and we'll just say it this way. Following Jesus means living like Jesus with others. We are so connected that we become one body. And the way that one body stays together is following Jesus means living like Jesus with other people. And you know, believe it or not, one of the ways that your depth of spiritual maturity is evaluated is in how you live with other disciples. Have you ever thought about all of the ways that we evaluate how we're doing in church and with God and with Jesus and with each other? I mean, there's that old joke, right, about this long line, a billion people waiting to get into heaven. And all of a sudden, the people in the back of the line hear this gigantic roar at the front of the line and then wonder, what in the world is going on? It sounds like a celebration. Well, word begins to trickle back that Wednesday nights don't really count. And so there was this, <laughs> the way that we evaluate our spiritual maturity sometimes is not the way that God does. The way that God, one of the ways that God understand or evaluates our spiritual maturity is in how we relate to one another here's a couple of examples of where it all went wrong first corinthians chapter three it begins with a little bit of irony he 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 responds calling them brothers and sisters i could not address you as people who live by the spirit i mean they are so messed up in their relationships with each other that they are actually dividing over personalities i'm a paul i'm a cephas But in the third chapter, he begins by saying, brothers and sisters, it's a little ironical. And he says, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to churches in the region of Galatia. And in the fifth chapter, about the middle of that chapter, he says the entire law 
is fulfilled in keeping just one command, one command. And that is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's love. But if you bite and devour each other, and now you think about all the ways that biting and devouring each other could be interpreted or understood. I mean, what are some of the ways that you bite and devour each other in the world without actually being a cannibal? You libel, you slander, you lie, you steal, you disrespect. I mean, there are so many different, you judge. There are so many different ways that you can bite and devour another person. And he says, this cannot happen in the church or watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. One of the ways that you evaluate your depth of spiritual maturity in the body of Christ is how are you at relating to other people the way that Jesus relates to other people. Whether we like it or not, we need each other in this fallen world. We need each other. We, We need all of the stuff, the strength that comes from another person to make it through this fallen world with our faith intact. And this is one of the reasons why we need encouragement. Now, the word encourage, it kind of sounds like what it means. You're putting courage in. To encourage means putting courage in somebody. You are supplying courage. You are supplying strength. If I were to give you just a simple definition, it would look like this. Encouragement is the gift of strength in the face of fear. When you're giving somebody encouragement, at that point, they're beginning to shy away or they're beginning to fall away or they're beginning to, to shrink away. Strength is being diminished. When you encourage somebody, you're giving them heart in the face of danger or the face of fear. You're putting strength, you're supplying strength to a disciple in a fallen world. And I'm going to give you right now four reasons why that's super important for us in the world that we live in. The first is to counter the deadly lies of Satan. To counter the deadly lies of Satan. When it comes to the evil one, one of the things that we should never forget is that, uh, you you know, one of the the, the greatest tricks that Satan ever committed on earth was to convince humans he didn't exist. We need to remember that there is a malevolent being whose eyes are on us and who is completely disgusted with our faith and would do anything within his power to diminish that faith, to destroy that faith, and to bring spiritual wreckage to a human being. And so one of the things we must remember is that there is an evil one, and in thinking of the presence, the reality of that evil one, we do not forget what Jesus said about him, that he is a murderer. Satan is trying to kill you. He is a murderer from the beginning. He does not hold to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he is speaking his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. You know, one of of the ways that Satan comes at us is to whisper in our ear. A lot of times it's just, you know, the thing that is most dangerous to us is not going to be just that, that, that tremendous temptation that is put there in front of us. A lot of times we are outflanked and it's a whispering into our ear. And you think about the brothers and sisters that you've interacted with. Think about your own life. Think about the lies that Satan whispers into the ears of a, of a disciple of Jesus, of a believer. And which are the ones that find traction? 
Which are the ones that find traction? You're not good enough and you never will be good enough. It's whispered into our ear. It is a lie and yet we believe it. No one loves you. No one loves you. How discouraging is it to go through life thinking that nobody loves you? That nobody cares for you, that nobody notices you, that nobody sees you, that you're doing this life alone. And that is one of the things that Satan whispers into the ears of people all over the world is that no one loves you or you will never escape your past. You know, the past is the past, right? It's not the present, it's not the future, it's in the past. But we keep dragging the past into our present, right? I mean, sometimes it just feels like we're chained to that thing that we did in the past. And Satan knows this about us. And he says, guess what? You're never going to escape your past. Or how about this one? God, God doesn't forgive people like you. God will not forgive you. I mean, some of us have done some things and thought some things and have said some things. and just hard for us to get over it ourselves, right? I mean, the pain is real. The struggle is real is real with some of the things that we have thought or done or have perpetrated on somebody else's life. And the lie that is whispered into our ear is no matter how hard you try, God is not going to forgive you. Another one is try harder. You're not trying hard enough. God will only save you if you try harder, if you go harder, if you try harder. Or how about that God doesn't exist? Those moments in the darkness, the moments where the doubts begin to rise to the surface, where you're wondering in the middle of the night, in the darkness, in your mind, in your soul, is there a God? And there's the whispering. He says, you know, there's really no evidence. What's the evidence for you that there's a God? God doesn't exist. Or how about this one? You'll never change. You'll never change. Regardless of how hard you try, it will be for naught. It will be for nothing because you can never change and it's a lie because that's one of the reasons that God puts his spirit in you so that you will be transformed so that you will be changed by a power that is outside of you that has come inside of you in order for you to live as a disciple of Jesus which means to to look like Jesus but that's the lie you'll never be able to change so it's the counter the lies of Satan number two to counter loneliness you know there are just times in life which it is just too absolutely hard to face it alone and it's just a a loneliness it's just a burden and then COVID-19 hits and the pandemic hits and we're socially distanced we're isolated from people we don't do the, the the normal things that we typically do in interaction with people and and loneliness just gets bigger and bigger and bigger here's a quote from Time Magazine last year Even before the COVID, and I quote, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, public health experts were concerned about an epidemic of loneliness in the U.S. The coronavirus has exacerbated that problem with most face-to-face socializing for people still under lockdown orders indefinitely limited to members of their own household. For the nearly 36 million Americans who live alone, that means no meaningful social contact at all, potentially for months on end. End of quote. What happens when we get lonely? Loneliness is so debilitating. To try to do life alone, you know, the health effects 
of loneliness are often likened to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But here's the thing. There are many, many more, much more lonely people out there in the world than there are those that that smoke 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is real, and as a family made up of disciples of Jesus, we want to take that seriously. Number, Number three, to counter the agony of mistakes. What is the biggest fear people have when they make a mistake? This is the way that people are always going to remember me. This is how they're going to see me. This is how they're going to identify me. It's with this mistake. It's with with this thing that I did that I wish I could do back. The agony of mistakes. People are going to judge me harshly. This is how people will always think of me. I can never show my face and feel confident. Or maybe it gets to that place where people just, they don't, Because of the agony, the tremendous agony of that mistake, they just cannot forgive themselves. And then the last one is to counter daunting obstacles. You know, I'm going to face things that are bigger than me. You're going to face things bigger than you. That's That's just life. And these obstacles are daunting, and they will rise up like giants, and they will shout defiance, and they will shout disdain, into your heart for the power of God and the presence of God in your life. And they will shrivel your view of God just like Goliath did in the valley of Elah. Each day he would get up, he'd go into the middle of that valley, and he would shout disdain and insults and indifference and defiance into the hearts of Israel. And they would not go forward to meet him. And the temptation when these obstacles stand before us and and cast a shadow over us is that they will diminish and shrink our faith and so this is why as a church because this is because people in our church family and the people around us the people that we love people in our family our extended church family are going to face these things on a daily basis we have got to begin developing the muscles of encouragement We have got to flex those muscles on a daily basis. And this is not just for people who have the gift of encouragement, where it just kind of seems to go natural for them. Every person in this room is going to be given an opportunity every day in the interaction with a disciple of Jesus or a loved one to encourage them to do better, to be better, to have a deeper faith, a more profound faith, and to keep going every day. And there's this fella in the early church who was so good at encouraging people that he was given a nickname. Now, we are told that his name is Joseph. He is a Levite. He is from Cyprus. But if I were to ask you what his, you know, if you knew his nickname, what his real name was, you wouldn't be able to tell me. But it's Joseph. His nickname, and it's the name he is most famous for, is Barnabas, which is the Aramaic way of saying the son of encouragement. And Barnabas teaches us much when it comes to encouraging others. I'll mention three. One of the ways that you encourage people like Barnabas is to be an example of commitment. The first time that we are introduced to Barnabas, it is in the infancy days, the beginning days, beginning days of the church. And in the beginning days of anything, people have doubts. People wonder, you know, where's this thing leading? What is the trajectory? What can we expect? And in the infancy days of the church, there was pushback from the culture around them, from the, from the neighborhoods, from the city around them, the people around them. And so there were some doubts. 
Is this the right way to go? And there were all kinds of things that were happening. There were miracles that were confirming, confirming, confirming. But then here comes this guy by the name of Joseph that everybody calls Barnabas. And one day in Acts chapter 4, he sells a, a field that he owns. He sells a piece of property. And he gets some money for it. And instead of keeping that money as a, as a savings or you know, retirement or whatever he might do with it, or buy something nice for the wife, he brings that money and he lays it at the apostles' feet and says, you do with it what you need to do with it. There was something in this act that was just so galvanizing for the early Christians. They saw, they saw somebody that said, this is so real. This is so deep. This is so significant that I am not only going to give myself to it, but I am going to sacrifice to be a part of it. And he sells this piece of land, and he gives it to the apostles, lays it at their feet, and says, you do with it what you need to do with it. And people saw that, and you know, they see something, but you know what they hear? We can do this. We can do this. There is something about an example of commitment that just deepens people's faith and, and takes them along the road of growing in their own commitment to live as a disciple of Jesus. The second thing is to stand beside someone. You know, this is, this is one of the most significant things you can do without saying something. You know, all of us know someone who feels isolated, someone who feels through the agony of a mistake or whatever it might be, that they are, are alone and they're facing life alone and they're facing the obstacle alone and it's under their power, it's under their steam, it's with their intelligence, it's with you know, their strength that they're going to have to deal with this and they don't think they can do it. I mean, maybe that's, that's been you where you were facing something in this life that was just so big and you felt so alone and then somebody sidled up next to you shoulder to shoulder and you just knew by just not being alone, by just having somebody stand beside you, that you were going to make it. You know, there are, there are times when even in the church we do things and we just wonder, am I, going to, am I going to be loved? Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be judged so harshly? You know, is anybody going to get within 10 feet of me if I go to church? And there's that person that sidles up next to you, touches you, looks at you, and you just know without them saying anything that this is going to be okay. The, the word for encouragement in the original language means to literally pull someone to your side, to stand beside somebody. And the message is we're not, you're not standing alone, we're standing together in this. And sometimes knowing someone is just on your side, even if they don't agree, even if they would be the first one to say, yeah, you made a really big mistake. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have done that. But for somebody to say, I'm still on your side, that's just huge. And so there's Paul, right? Saul at the time, he's going around, he's killing Christians, holding the cloaks of those that are picking up the stones to throw at Stephen. And... You know, now he's on his way to Damascus, and you know the story, he's knocked off his animal. He is, he is so converted in that moment because he realized, because it's Jesus that's talking to him, that he has been wrong. And he goes on into Damascus, and after, you know, some days in blindness, he can spiritually see now, he's baptized, and he begins to preach. 
Some time after that, he tries to go to Jerusalem. And everybody knows him, right? They, they Saul, he's, he's the killer. He's the church killer. And nobody really, you know, everybody's a little nervous. They've heard the stories of the conversion, but everybody's a little bit nervous around him. And Barnabas takes him by the hand and brings him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. One of the most encouraging things you can do for somebody is to see in them the way that God sees uh, possibility in them. And then the last thing is just at some point you got to speak the words, the words that build up. This is inten- it's not giving a compliment. It is, it's more affirming. It is encouraging. It is getting, giving somebody the strength through words to face what they fear. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another and build each other up. Does your language build people up? You know, when that church in Antioch first got started, it was the first big church outside of Jerusalem. Everybody's nervous. Are they, are they cool? Are they doing things right? So they decide in Jerusalem that they're going to send somebody to Antioch. Who do they decide to send? It's Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And when he arrives in Antioch, he sees what the grace of God is doing in people. And he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. You know, know that your faith is visible and seen. And your commitment of faith that is seen, not that you're showing off, but in the daily living of a disciple of Jesus is seen. And it can encourage people to follow the steps of Jesus. And, and there are opportunities for you to go stand beside someone who doesn't really feel like there's anybody that wants to stand beside them and to say, you know, we're in this together. And there's opportunities for you to be able to speak words into somebody's heart that's going to build them up. If I were to ask you this question, we live in a fallen world. Is this world as it is fallen? Does it encourage us in our faith? The answer is no. It works against us. If I were to say, does this world discourage you? The answer is yes. And so the question is, because encouragement is important, where do you go to get the encouragement? Where do you go to get the encouragement in your life to live faithfully as a disciple of Jesus? The answer to that question is here in the body of Christ. If we don't encourage one another, then who is going to do it? Who is going to do it? Let's stand and sing.